All right, it's 1987, and the American photographer artist Andres Serranos displayed this photographer, this, this photograph as an art piece. Um, it's right here, and I want you to take, take a second and ponder it. 1987, he released this. Andres Serranos exhibited this piece in a series of works called Immersion. And he immersed different statuettes and figures into various kinds of liquid, like milk and blood, etc. And then he would take photographs of them. And this piece that you see now uh, was in that, that, that collection of work. And this piece that you see right now actually brought on a lot of scandal. It brought on a lot of controversy. Remember, he would, he would immerse different figurines in different liquids. And this particular piece, depicted in this crucifixion in a glass jar, of the artist's own urine. That's that striking orange you see. It's that haunting paleness from the light above, and it's cast on the small Jesus of Nazareth who hangs on a cross. Knowing what this is, um, what emotion does that piece like, bring out? Knowing what the piece is, what it's sitting in, does it bring up disgust? Does it bring, um, like, sound like, ooh, I don't know if I can look at that necessarily, or maybe anger? Maybe some of you, it's like, oh, there's some difference with this. Like, I don't really, it doesn't really bother me. Um, or does it bring up bewilderment? Like, why on earth would an artist do that? As you can imagine, this photograph, it generated a lot of controversy. Um, it was seen by many as being blasphemous and degrading. Serrano himself received death, death threats and hate mail, and he lost a lot of grants due to the controversy. And even as recently as 2000, 2012, um, like almost 20-ish years later, some religious groups and lawmakers tried to get then-President Barack Obama to denounce this artwork as offensive to the Christian faith when it was displayed again in a gallery in New York. It brought on a lot of controversy. I distinctly remember the first time I saw it. I was uh, in youth group, and my youth pastor showed us this illustration as part of a sermon that he did. Um, I grew up in the 90s, so that was like the height of this controversy. And um, the sermon illustration was along the lines of like our culture mocking Christ, mocking him. And in the same way, like we should expect to be mocked too as we follow Christ. That's how it was used. And that was his driving point home. Um, it wasn't to a few years ago, and why this picture came to mind as I was preparing for today is it wasn't until like a few years ago that I, I read an article, um, and then it, it was kind of talking about this moment back then in 1987, 90s, and it was Serrano himself, the artist, kind of talking about the controversy or what that drummed up, what that did in him, um, just all the kind of fiasco that went with it. And I found out from that article that um, at the time, uh, Serrano was a practicing Catholic, and he said this in the article, I, have no, I, I had no idea this image would get the attention it did. Since I meant neither blasphemy or offense by it, I've been a practicing Catholic all my life. I'm a follower of Christ. He rejected the assertion that he was motivated by blasphemy, and he said this, that it was his intent as a Christian work of art. And here's the line that I want to I grab, and this is why it grabbed me, because I remember being offended by this. And I remember being like, Why? And I remember, like, drawing my attention, and it grabbed, it grabbed me, but in a way of kind of disgust is what it did. 
But he said this in the article, and this is what shook me. He said, what it symbolizes is the way Christ died. That blood came out of him. That he lived as a human. Fully God, fully man. And he says this, maybe if this image upsets you, it's because it gives us some sense of what the crucifixion actually was like. It should cause a reaction. It gives us some sense of what the crucifixion is like. One more piece of art today, maybe to wash our minds of that. Um, this one, as if you can imagine, is a little actually more lowbrow uh, than the one I just showed you. Uh, here it is. This is called Alex Menos Graffitio. This is a piece of Roman graffiti. It's Roman graffiti that was scratched into the plaster on a wall of a room near Palatine Hill in Rome. Um, it's now on that still plaster, but now the piece is in a museum. This piece of graffiti, uh, it may be, it's meant to depict Jesus. Um, here's a tracing of it that somebody did. Maybe just to kind of give you a clear picture of what it is. It's meant to depict Jesus. This graffiti is dated back to about 200 AD, so 100 plus years post-Jesus. And it is nothing special. It's nothing special. It's like your run-of-the-mill graffiti that you see all the time driving through Bakersfield. Um, and uh, I was thinking about it, like, think about how, like, if some humans 1,800 years from now excavated, like, a junior high school and they found bathroom stalls, right? And, like, what would they think? What would they, like, recognize? About, like, they'd find this on the bathroom stall and they'd be like, what did they mean? <laughs> right? Like, um, that's kind of what we're looking at when we're looking at this. This is, it's just graffiti that they found. Amazingly, though, um, this 1,800-year-old Roman graffiti is considered to be the earliest pictorial representation of Christ crucified. It's the earliest. Alex Menos worships his God. Alex Menos worships his God. This is meant to ridicule and to mock Alex Menos for worshiping a crucified Messiah. This is what, like, if you can imagine, this is, this is what the normal graffiti just on a bathroom stall that somebody would write in Rome in 200 AD, mocking somebody like Alex Monos, maybe a friend of theirs, maybe someone they know, and his worship of a crucified Messiah on a Roman cross. I show you these images today to start off our text because it's so easy to become so familiar with this moment in the gospel story of Jesus' death on a cross. It becomes familiar for me as well. That I look upon it and be like, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. And it can kind of numb a little bit. What are we looking at? What are we looking at when we behold Christ on the cross? Nick, a few weeks ago in his teaching, shared this. By the way, Nick and Jackie say hi. Um, uh, Ryan and Keisha, who are part of our community, are getting married today. And Nick's performing their wedding. So if you guys see them when they're here next couple weeks, congratulate them. Nick shared this a few weeks ago, a line from Bruce Shelley. It's not on the screen. I'll just read it. It says, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. The central event, the humiliation of its God. What are we supposed to do with this? What does it mean for us? We should admit the strangeness of this. We worship, as incredible as it sounds, a crucified God. Every major movement or religion has a symbol to summarize its core. Buddhists have the lotus flower, Islam the crescent moon, 
Republicans, the elephant. Democrats, the donkey. Communists, the hammer and the sickle. Christianity is a Roman execution device. It would, be, it would be as strange for us today if a new movement popped up and as its symbol was the, a gallow and a noose or an electric chair that you put on a gold chain and you wear around your neck, right? That's how it would be like, whoa, what's happening? We'd have the same reaction of that, maybe that, first, that, paint, that photograph that we saw. This is the original scandal of the Christian faith. God nailed to a tree. The Apostle Paul wrote as such in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, when he said, we proclaim Christ crucified. It's what we proclaim. It's a stumbling block for the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles, right? Alexemos worships his God. The cross is the Christian symbol because it's where sin is forgiven. It's where the world is set right, It's where God in Jesus is fully revealed. He is the image of the invisible God. At the cross, we see the Trinity's love on display. That God so loved the world that he gave in this way his only son. Jesus, in this act, actually disarms the power and authorities. He he destroys Satan's work. It's a symbol of our complicity in sin. It's also a symbol of our liberation in sin. It's this upside-down moment in the kingdom where God would rather die on a cross at the hands of his enemies than to kill them. And instead, he forgives them. And with those of us that with eyes to see, we can say like the Roman centurion that we're going to look at today, that surely this is the Son of God. Surely this is the Son of God. We've been walking through this Lenten season, this 40 days of preparation for Easter. Lent is the time of reflecting. Lent is the time of repentance. Lent, Lent is the time of reorientating our set, like from ash we've come and from ash we will return. That we will all actually partake in what Christ partaked in. We haven't yet because you're here breathing, but we will all taste death. And in this moment, as we prepare for Easter, before Easter, we stop and we actually today, my invitation for us is just to behold Christ, is to behold Christ crucified, to look on it again, like to have fresh eyes, soft eyes, to see it one more time. And I want you this morning, my invitation is just to ponder again, is to wonder again at the death of Jesus. Jesus, I just thank you for the story that's in the scriptures. I'm like faithfully captured and faithfully um, witnessed to, and that we, like 2,000 years later, get to wonder and, and to behold you again, Jesus crucified. That in this way, you are redeeming the world, you are redeeming the cosmos, all things, God, you are making new. And so we come, like, humbly today before that. I come just with my, like, meager words, God, and we, and And we ask that like your scriptures would just like, your spirit would illuminate the scriptures for us this morning. That we would look again upon the cross. That we would see who you are, Jesus. That we would see through you what God is like. And God, that in us it would cause, um, it would cause worship and not just singing worship, but like all of life allegiance to you, King Jesus. And so we worship you this morning, we pray. Amen.
So if you have your Bible, we're going to go through the passage. Um, I read one scholar this week that was talking about this passage in Mark is like driving along a road, like a dirt road after a hard rain, and there's just pothole after pothole after pothole. Um, Like every line in this passage could be a sermon, right? So it's like, okay, what do we hit today? Um, So we're going to hit a few of it, not all of it, um, because it's so rich. But I just want to start at the beginning at it. Verse 33, 1533. 1533 says this. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Mark starts this part of the story and he says, at noon, the middle of the day, What happens? Darkness comes over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And when the scriptures say that darkness comes over the whole land, if you know your scriptures, if you know the story, like a hyperlink just got clicked or an overlay just got put over this story that like illuminates what's going on. The first overlay is this. The first one is from Exodus and the 10 plagues or the 10 judgments. We actually know them as plagues in kind of our common vernacular. Maybe a better way to think about it is the 10 signs or the 10 judgments against Egypt from God. If you recall that story, the emperor of Egypt, Pharaoh, he has enslaved the Israelites. And this is really important to understanding that story. And because he's afraid that they're going to grow in number and overtake um, the emperor, the, the, the Pharaoh, the emperor of Egypt, that he actually kills the firstborn of all the Israelites. This like horrible act. This is what he does. He takes the firstborn and he casts them into the Nile River. If you can just imagine the pain of that. Years later, God hears the cry of those who are oppressed people and he comes to liberate the Israelites from slavery through Moses. And in that story, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go chance after chance, and he refuses to let them go. And God judges Pharaoh with 10 signs of decreation. Genesis narrative, it's all creation, 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 and we encounter Pharaoh. He does not let the people go, and God is a judgment. Things start decreating. For instance, the water of the Nile is good. It turns to blood. Frogs come out of that. Lice, flies, livestock, pestilence, boils, hails, locusts, goodness, right? Like one after the other. And the ninth judgment is the sign of darkness. Darkness covers the land. If you remember that story after the ninth judgment, the ninth plague of darkness, what comes next on the 10th? It's, it's the death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn. You have darkness followed by the death of the firstborn. And in the Exodus story, this is the death of the firstborns for both Egyptians and Israel. But God gives a way through that judgment by preparing a spotless lamb. The lamb's blood would be put over the doorposts. The lamb then would be prepared as a meal inside that house. And this tenth sign, this judgment, the Bible says that the destroyer angel would pass over the house with the spotless lamb's blood on the doorpost. And so when Mark says at noon, darkness came over the whole land at three in the afternoon, and he says, darkness has covered the land. It's like he's saying, behold the Lamb of God that's, that's taking away the sins of the world. Darkness comes in, and we are reminded of the exodus, reminded of the work of God, that liberation's about to come. The second overlay, we go backwards in the story. We see back in the book of beginnings, Genesis, that before God brought good order to creation and to the world, there was darkness over the earth, and the Spirit of God hovered over that chaos. And into that darkness, what does God do? He speaks. 
Let there be light, and there is light. Mark says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land, and we are reminded of the exodus, and we are reminded of the darkness of, of, of the chaos waters in Genesis that God speaks into. What is happening here in Mark's account is not an eclipse. How many of you have seen an eclipse before? I've seen it. Remember the little box he made and you look through? That's not what's happening here. Um, this is Passover time. Passover is happening, which we know would have been a full moon, different part of the position. So this is not like a natural event. It's the middle of a day. And what Mark is saying here is like this cosmic sign of significance. Something like a sign is happening. We don't know how it was dark. We just know that it was dark. And our, uh, we're supposed to cue in to like something's happening now. It's as if creation, it's camp today a little bit. Mark 15, 33 through 47 says this. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Um, that's the same word that we actually get for megaphone. So if you can imagine, like, he cries out this. Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries this out. At the end of that darkness, he cries this out. And I want to stay here for a bit this morning, um, and I want to start with this. We are actually wading into like the deep end of the mysterious waters of what we read. We are stepping in into the relationship of God the Father and Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man, God the Son. We are stepping into God's work on behalf of all creation, dealing with our sin and brokenness. And so when I use the word like we're stepping into some mystery, I use it intentionally. We are stepping into the thing that we can spend our entire lives looking at, pondering at, learning from, and we'll never reach the end. Like, welcome to following Jesus. Like, we will like, we'll never reach the end of the wonder of this. And so we must come today, my encouragement is to come humbly in wonder and reverence and thanksgiving not necessarily as analyzing something, like to find hidden codes of a relic past, but something to behold. That's what we're saying today. And so as we approach this, just to give you like a way of doing it, as an analogy that's helped me, is often we can approach the scriptures as like the difference between, um, and this is a metaphor, the difference between a butterfly enthusiast and a bird watcher, okay? Just help me out, play with me a little bit on this one. Sometimes we can approach the scriptures in those two ways. A butterfly enthusiast, they capture their specimen, and in order to admire its beauty, they actually pin it to a wall to look at it. It's a great way of observing close because it stays still. The problem with that is in order to look that closely, you actually have to, like, you have to take the life out of it to look at it. You take its, ability, you take its living creatureness out to observe it closely. Whereas a bird watcher, on the other hand, examines in the same way, but in a way that lets the beauty come to it, that knows that it looks, but it doesn't grab or grasp or, or, or pin down. And I, and I say like as an example of just how to approach this, that we approach it that way. Like we come to the cross and say, God, what do you have to say through this? Not grabbing it, pinning it down and saying, what can, I want to know. Like, hopefully here, like, enter into the wonder of it. So Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's his Aramaic language that he knew as a kid. And this means, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? And as Christians, we understand, I think, what it means to an extent, what it means that Christ died for our sins. We can somehow know that story and believe in that, that we have fallen short, that we have sinned. We've all participated in that. And just in the same way that Christ bore those sins on the cross, that we've given up our image-bearing of God to image lesser things, idols, and that Jesus absorbs that and forgives that and dies for our sin. I want you to hear me on that. But I was forced with the question this week is, what does Jesus dying for our sins mean for Jesus? What does Jesus dying for our sins and having this moment right here, what does it mean for him? When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My question this week was, did God forsake Jesus? Did God turn his face from Jesus? Did God abandon? As the sins of the world are placed on Jesus, he bore our sin and shame. What does this passage mean? Was it not just a feeling of abandonment, or was it actually that? If sin separates us from God, does God turn away from Jesus here as he absorbs the sin? As a moment just for our community as we do this well, I want to encourage you to always take um, what in the scriptures is like a Berean approach. Have you ever heard that term before? Berean approach. What that means is um, Acts, Paul in Acts 17, he's preaching the gospel to the Berean Jews in the synagogue. And the scriptures have this great line about that because he's preaching the gospel to them, showing how Jesus is the Messiah. And it said the Bereans were noble Jews and that they received Paul's message with eagerness. They received it, but they searched the scriptures to see if it was true. And I love that. I want to encourage our community to be Bereans about that. Whatever's teaching, whatever's happened, like you actually weigh it with the scriptures. Weigh it with the scriptures. And so I'm going to share my opinion on this this morning. And I want you to examine them for yourselves um, as we have a dialogue about the scriptures together. So this passage, in Stuart Town's uh, Towned song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, there's this song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, How Vast Beyond All Measures. It says, How Great the Pain of Searing Loss the father turns his face away. Do you know that line? Do you know that song? I love that song. Um, I've led that song many times, and it's significant to me. But my question in that line, the father turns his face away, is, is that true? Is that what's happening here? When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Is this what the biblical authors teach? Jesus absolutely bears our sin and shame as our substitute. That's Christian thinking 101. But I want to ask you, is it a specifically explicit idea that there's a breach in the relationship between Jesus and the Father as Jesus bears the sin of the world? This conclusion of God turning and essentially there being a breach, which that's what I was taught. I'm finding that it's like it's fraught with actually theological difficulties. How can God, who is triune, abandon himself? If God in this moment is separate from Jesus, does that mean that like sin, even in like a moment, has the ability to like rip the fabric of, of God, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit? Is the Father turning away from the Spirit as well, who descended on Jesus in his baptism and remained? Where is the Holy Spirit in this? If God turns away from his son he loves because he bears the sin of the world, how can God possibly look at my sin? And how do we square this with the scriptures 
that describe Jesus, fully God, pursuing sinners, eating with sinners, holy but in their presence. This comes from our friend Dr. Gary Bashir's. It's been helpful in this. And as he sees it, he says this, this picture we see on the cross is the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son. It's two key points. First, the wrath of the Son and sin, meaning this, what we're seeing here is the partnership between God the Father and God the Son, who together bear the weight of sin as a substitutionary sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of both the Father and the Son. Meaning this, this moment that we're looking for is not the Father happening to the Son, like divine child abuse, as some would say. It's a partnership, a yielding together for the redemption of the world. Both are dealing with sin head on. No enmity, but a partnership. This is Jesus' cry of rejection. Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're to hear this this morning as a lament. Quote from Psalms 22, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bible, go to Psalms 22. It'll be on the screens too if you don't. But this phrase that Jesus screams from the cross, it's not original to Jesus. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's doing is he's living out his situation described in the Psalms. It's as if Jesus from the Psalms, as the son of suffering, actually looks out and he sees what's happening and he quotes Psalms 22. Jesus, remember, is exhausted. He is in extreme pain. He is beaten and when he quotes this line for the reader, my suggestion for us this morning when I'll get through is when he quotes this line, he is bringing in all of the Psalms into that one line. He says one line and we as the reader are supposed to remember the rest of the Psalms and the whole story that that tells. Um, as an example of that, if I sang to you the first line or the first line of the chorus of Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline, you would all know what to do next, Right? Sweet Caroline. Oh, it's like we're at a Sox game. I love it. So we understand that. We would probably keep singing it. We could do it. It'd be a blast. But I just gave you one line, and culturally we all went, oh, I know what to do next, right? I know where we're going. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? I believe he is cueing us in to look at this psalm and to see, going like, oh, this is what's happening. This is Messiah. This is Messiah on a cross. So with Psalms 22 in mind, let's turn there. Um, I'll throw it up on the screen as well. Just we'll go through, we're not going to go through the whole thing, but a big chunk um, to get to the end, because the end is where I want to grab us with today. Psalms 22, 1 through 2 says this, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sweet Caroline. And then the rest of the song. Why are you so far from saving me? The psalmist says. This is David writing. So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Do you hear the lament in the psalmist's cry? Where are you, God? I am praying and crying out, and it's like my prayers are hitting the ceiling and are just falling down. Where are you? Uh, let's skip ahead to verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. What is happening with Christ on the cross at that moment? 
hurling insults, shaking their heads. Let's keep going. Um, Verse 12. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, they tear their prey. They open their mouths wide against me. Keep in context Jesus being crucified by the Romans in this moment. It keeps going. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It melts within me. My mouth is dried up like a post herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. Listen to this. This is the Psalms. They pierce my hands and my feet. My bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Do you remember that part of the story where the Romans do that to him? Towards the end here, like a good lament, there's this honesty in the front. Where are you, God? And almost in every lament, towards the end, there's a turn where it's like I'm being fully honest with the living God and also fully trusting And it says this at the end, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. It's like the psalmist saying, I want you to revere God here. And this is how it ends. Jesus quotes that first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's how the psalm ends and answers that. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry of help. Jesus says from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want to, what I want to propose is that he's having this whole psalm, not saying that God's leaving, but this honest lament of saying, God, where are you? But knowing who God is, this must be taken into account when Jesus says this, a complete trust in his father, his Abba. He proclaims that God has not despised the afflicted one and has not turned his face from him. And he tells us that his father has heard his prayer and answered. The cry of Jesus in this moment is that he actually is experiencing the God forsakenness. But his cry is not like, oh, where's God? Its cry is to God. And in this psalm, he knows that even though he cannot hear, sense, or see, he knows who his father is. Or say it this way, Christ in this moment does not sense his father, his Abba, but he knows his father. He might not sense him, but he knows. And what he knows is that his father will never leave him. Jesus tells us so in John as he's talking to his disciples about this. He says to his disciples, you will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. To the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Christ submits to the Father. He is heard by that. On the cross, Jesus does take our sin upon himself. On the cross, Jesus is suffering. It was the will of God, experiencing forsakenness, not because God ontologically or actually abandoned him, but because this was the will of God to experience this, to experience the suffering. For Jesus, in his deepest time of need, here he is in his deepest time of need, feeling that God is nowhere, utterly alone, and he cries out, and like the psalm says, 
Like his prayers hit the ceiling and fall down. But he knows who his father is. How are we supposed to process that for us? My guess is that many of us in here have actually experienced abandonment. Many of us have walked through um, what faithful saints before us have called the dark night of the soul, feeling that God is nowhere. Have you been there? Have you ever felt forsaken by God? Could you echo that, that line in the Psalms that Jesus quotes? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you there now? This moment of Jesus' crying from the cross is Jesus in a lamenting trust of the Father. And Jesus knowing who he is, knowing that his Father will not abandon him. Um, it's important for us to actually learn this language of lament. Pondering it this morning, I was thinking about um, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness when he's brought out to the wilderness and tested by the devil. And three times, what does Jesus respond with in those times? He responds with the scriptures, particularly Deuteronomy. And here, Jesus in another testing, um, a crushing, and what comes out of his mouth, I think, is the first line of the Psalms. And I was pondering that this morning. It's like when Jesus is crushed, what comes out of him is like, is like, is, is, is scripture, but scripture that's like has this trust towards God. In Deuteronomy, in the, in the tempting in the wilderness, like, no man does not live by bread alone. I trust my father. On the cross, he can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Knowing that at the end of that, that God hears, that God has not forsaken me, that God has not heard his voice. We must learn the language of lament. In December, this last year during um, Advent, we had a night of lament. We actually practiced it as a community. Many people actually like wrote laments and we shared them. And my goodness, they were raw. They were just like hearts exposed. Here's God, where were you? But I, but I trust. We must learn this language. We must not hide from God but to give him our lament and to trust him in this. When I read this this morning, this is hope to me. I find hope in it. Anybody who is in Jesus in our darkest hour of grief or loss or pain, God is with us. God is still Emmanuel, God with us. That is what this picture in this moment shows us, that even in God forsakenness, and when that comes and that's all you see and you cry out to like a silent heaven, even when you are in that place, if you are in Christ, the truth is God is there with you. God is there with you through it in the silence and in the suffering. And through the cross, we are brought into that Trinitarian relationship. Let's keep reading through a little more. I want to get to the centurion. Verse 35, let's go back into Mark 15. When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Remember, he just said his, his statement in Aramaic, why have you forsaken me? Verse 36, someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. And they said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes, down, comes to take him down. He said, always been like confused by this passage, like why are they doing this all of a sudden? But those standing near Jesus, they actually mishear him. 
They mishear him. He says in his own native tongue of Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, and what they hear is Elijah. Elijah. Elijah, Elijah. Elijah, if you remember, was a prophet um, who did some incredible things like in the name of God. Um, he actually never died. Um, the scriptures say he was just taken up. And so, of course, they're always thinking like, where's Elijah? When's Elijah going to come back? Maybe this is what Jesus is doing. Maybe this is that moment. But instead, we get verse 37. And it says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And in this, his incarnation was complete. Christ, just like humanity, has all been born of a woman. Christ, just like us, suffered. And now he enters into the thing we'll all enter into, his death. Scriptures, they then say this, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And so as we end this morning, I just want to end just looking at the centurion's response because I believe it's an invitation for our response in Holy Week as we behold Christ on the cross. First, Mark 1, the very beginning of Mark, this word son of God is really important for the the gospel writer Mark. This very first verse of the book says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. The opening line speaks of Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. The only other time we hear that phrase is when Jesus is being baptized and the voice from heaven says, this is my son. Or, the vo- or on Mount, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John when they hear another voice and God says, this is my beloved son. And a few weeks ago, we looked at Caiaphas mockingly asking Jesus if he was Messiah, God's son. And the crowds mocked him with the same words. Um, N.T. Wright on his commentary in Mark says this. That was good for us to hear. He says, and now at last, it's not the high priest, not a leading rabbi, not even a loyal disciple, but a battle-hardened thug in Roman uniform. Used to killing humans, the Roman centurion becomes the first sane human being in Mark's gospel to call Jesus God's son and mean it. Caiaphas didn't mean it when he called him that. Yes, says Mark to his possibly Roman audience, and if him, why not more? Here is this centurion. If you can imagine him for a second, fully armored, a large helmet that signifies that he's in charge. He was responsible for the training and the discipline of the troops under his command. He would have overseen about 80 legionnaires, and centurions had this reputation for being harsh in their punishment. And so like N.T. Wright said in the quote before, he was battle-hardened. Like another day, another crucifixion, right? Punch in, punch out. Think about that for a second. This is his daily job, and he must have been good at it. He must have seen it all, but notice with me this progression in this, this first one. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, that's what the scriptures say, And how I hear this language is I believe like this is where the centurion just beholds Jesus. Behold means to observe closely. What is happening here? What is this about? Our images of the crucifixion are usually high crosses, right? But in Roman crosses, they're probably only seven feet high. Like they're eye level. They're eye level. Rome wanted you humiliated up close. 
Here the centurion stood there in front of Jesus, possibly eye to eye. He beholds Jesus bloodied and a broken gaze. And he sees just ugliness, like in, in ways like he sees this. Just like, what? The crowd, they see disgust, they see this. But the centurion has eyes to see something else. Most people around see this. Like, oh, this is a failed Messiah what this is. But the centurion, I think, through the Spirit, has eyes to see something else. This is one of my favorite quotes from Hans Ernst von Balthasar. It says this, Being disguised under disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. One more time. Being disguised and under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of, of who God is. What is God like? What is the God like that we worship? God is cruciformed. This is what God is like. The invitation from the centurion today for us is one, and this is my invitation for you this week, is to behold Christ again crucified. And ask this question, what does this mean? What does this mean? And like a gem, turn it again. What does this mean? What does this mean? To ponder it. The second thing the centurion does is this. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus says this, saw how he died. He stood in front of Jesus and he saw how he died. He observed the way in which Jesus died. Remember, this is a battled hard warrior. He sees this every day. He sees somebody dying every day. Something's different about this one. Something's different about this young Jew he's killing today. Other through the Gospels, we know there's seven statements from Christ upon the cross. I wonder if he observed this. Might be hard for you to see it back, but I'll read them. To God, he says this. Out of seven statements throughout the four Gospels, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. To the good thief on the cross next to him, he says, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. To Mary, his mother, he says, Woman, behold your son. And to John, his disciple, behold your mother. He takes care of his mom in this moment. From the Psalms we read today, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To all, he says, I thirst. To the world, he says, it is finished. And then lastly, to God, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What else would have the centurion seen as he beheld Christ and he watched how he died? Our invitation for you this morning is to behold Christ and to observe how he died and ask this, what does this mean? Lastly, as we close, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. He proclaims who he is. Proclaims who he is. Last quote. Scholar Greg Evans wrote this, the Roman centurion confess, confesses of Jesus what he should only confess to a Roman emperor. Caesar is not the Son of God. Jesus the crucified Messiah is. In calling Jesus the Son of God, the centurion has switched his allegiance from Caesar, who is the official Son of God, to Jesus, who is the real Son of God. Our invitation today, and for you, 
is to behold Christ. Our invitation, my invitation to you, is to see how he died. And then I think the Spirit's invitation for us is to follow Jesus, is to say, behold, surely this is the Son of God. It's a sign of allegiance. It's a sign of following Jesus. The invitation for you today is to follow Jesus. If you've been baptized, the passage, just for time, we don't get to get to, but that verse 38, it says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And in this moment, it's from the top to the bottom. It's like a God thing. He tears the curtain. Where the presence of God is was in the Holy of Holies. It's now torn. And we, through the work of Christ, and through belief in him, and through allegiance to him, we get to participate in the presence of God. And that's actually what we get to do as we worship now, as we sing, as we worship through taking the bread and the cup, um, is we remember the Lord's death until he comes. And so may this be like an act of allegiance. May this be an act of remembering and thanksgiving, even as you hold the bread, the body of Christ, and you hold the cup, the, the wine, the blood of Christ. As we take communion today, would you ponder again Christ's death on a cross? And ask yourself, what does this mean? Ask the Lord, what does this mean? Let's pray. Jesus, as we step into Holy Week, as we again in this season of preparation, like come before you with our hearts open for like repentance to change our mind about um, even ourselves, our sin, who you are. Like we come I'm with a heart that wants to know you, um, that wants to behold you again, that we can say with the Roman centurion that surely you are the Son of God. God, as we just ask, like, what does this mean? Spirit, would you reveal again? Would we see, like, the consequences of our sin? Yes. May we also see, um, like, an act of your love, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. May we participate with you in the redemption of the world. And so we come to take the bread and cup and worship of you and remembrance of you. Jesus, would you be glorified through it? In your name we pray. Amen.